And although we appreciate young wizards like Eric and their ability to recall everything from their craniums, um, whoa, hey, these are great sound effects. Thank you guys for making me so ominous. Darth Vader-like. Is this part of your wizardry to throw me off in the beginning? And disorient, disorient me? Don't make me put my glasses on. I lost my glasses during the move, my cool ones, and I asked my wife to help me out in case I couldn't see the print. You know, sometimes the lighting's not so good. And my wife was kind enough to grab these bad boys for me. Um, honey, on a scale of 1 to 10 in cool, th these are not cool. <laughs> so, so when I put those on, I, I reach an all-time low. So I'm not even going to put them on. If I can't see, I'm just going to act like and see what the words are. And maybe you can pray that the Spirit helps me see what the words are, Jessica, because... Uh, yeah, so um, my name is Pastor Jeff Lee, and I know some of you are still confused on what to call me. And so you still can call me whatever you want. Um, PJ, that works, Pastor Jeff. You can call me Jeff. You can call me Lee. Uh, you can call me Hey. Uh, please don't call me Bro, because I think that's a little too casual, even though it is kind of the beachy environment. But whatever works for you, uh, call me. Um, one of the things that I want you to know that I'm most excited about, Jen and I in particular, is these first week and a half, uh, two weeks here, the word blessed is what comes to mind. And I have been in ministry a long time. I've been in ministry about 12 years, paid staff. And then I was in ministry up at a church called High Desert Church up in Victorville for about 13 years as a volunteer, so about 25 years in ministry. And they're kind of what we would call an uber church, like major, major multi-campus church and so to be at a church like this at this stage of my life blessed is just all that comes to mind and i am so excited about the season of ministry that feels like lee pastor lee has left for eric and i i'm just so excited so call text handwrite letters i know some of you are still protesting you know down with computers down with whatever you want whatever method of communication you want i am looking forward to spending time with you and your family and walking you through whatever stage of ministry you are and i think that's what's so exciting about a message like today um you guys are in a study called transitions and we're looking at the kings of the old testament and the one i get to share with you today king josiah literally is a snapshot of a young man a literal young man's life in ministry. And we get to talk about some of the ministry of this church with your VBS and the opportunity to outreach to children and to see children in light of how Christ sees children and then to watch a child grow up kind of in front of Israel. Uh, I think it just gives us perspective on how God sees children and how we can see children. So this morning, I know it's hot, and uh, I just want to remind you that where I'm from, this is air conditioning. So right now in La Quinta, it's already about 95, 100. So this 80-something that you're experiencing, this is what we turn our air conditioning on to get to. So um, I appreciate the fans and all that, but this is pretty wonderful. So thank you, and uh, I appreciate it, Lord, for what you've already given us. But let's open with some prayer, and then we're going to be studying King Josiah. And this is a passage from Second Chronicles 34 this morning. Father God, you are so good, and your love and your mercies endure forever. I love that song, and 
just been a blessing this morning to start with a time of worship, a time of fellowship. And we're all here for many different reasons. And, and some of us are not here this morning, and some of us wish that we could be here, but there's situations that keep us from being here. And Father, someone's maybe listening right now, and, uh, and they're kept from being here. I just pray right now for, for the Word of God as it continues to reach out, Father. Bless those that are here this morning for the effort. Uh, just coming this morning and talking with my brother. Um, you know, just to come to church sometimes is a struggle, and, and the devil throws so many different things at us to, to keep us from being here, but bless those who make the effort to come hear your word, Father. Know that the word of God does not come back void, Father, but bless those who, whose desire it is to be here, but because of health issues or physical ailments or other concerns, Father, they're not able to be here this morning. Would you bless those that are listening this morning, Father, and encourage them as well? Father, bless this church. May it truly be a lighthouse in this community, in this town. And may its light go forth from this town, um, even to Costa Rica and to all the different places, Father, that we send out missionaries and different opportunities that you present, Father. May this be a, a place of blessing and, and a legacy, Father, of just uh, where people come to know Christ, Father, and just what a blessing that is in a world today where we really need role models. I pray that this church can continue to develop that, Father. Will you be with this young man, Hunter, Father? We know that we've already prayed for him, but my heart just goes out to him. And, and just a reminder about this message, you know, the, the young men of, of this country, Father, are carrying the load of defending this country. And I just pray that right now we would just take a moment as a church to just remind ourselves that, you know, on the backs of 16 to 20-year-olds is the freedom of this country is carried. You know, and yet we, we think so little sometimes of our students and of our youth, but yet we ask them to protect the integrity of this country is carried on the backs of these young men and young women. Father, would you, would you lift them up and would you, would you promote them and carry them in such a way as to really find those that are spiritually leaders in there, Father, and use them? Would you use this young man from this church in a way that he might be your mouthpiece in his platoon and, and with those other people over there, Father, that he could carry the word of God over there in a bold way? Father, thank you for the wonderful opportunity the Word of God presents, and may this series transition continue to be something for all of us, that we might be wise leaders here, that we might hear the Word of God and heed it. Father, may everything that we hear, say, and do bring honor and glory to and through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we said, we got our VBS coming up this week, and so uh, Arctic Adventures, hopefully they're going to be bringing in a bunch of ice and air conditioning to, to get in the theme, but if not... I just want to remind you guys, if you want to get involved with that, you can. And we are going to be talking about a young king this morning, probably one of the youngest recorded kings. Josiah was actually uh, eight years old when he was asked to be king. And I think that's something that we can talk about as a church. It's something as a church is the church needs role models, and we need to realize that the church needs young role models, and we need to be investing into those young role models. And one of my favorite verses for the church to lean on, uh, I've got this word from Eric, lean on, so now I'm going to be using this is Proverbs 22.6, and I think I'm going to put that up there for you guys. This is one of those uh, three-by-five cards that I want to encourage parents uh, back in the old days of Deuteronomy. They would say, write this on your doorpost, uh, put this with you, carry it with you. This is one of those verses I really think a family, um, even grandparents, uh, everyone should kind of just have in their heart. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from that. And so I just want to sit on that for a second and just remind you, um, the idea of training up a child is something that is exclusively the parents, but something that everyone plays a role in. And so although God commissions the parents to do that, uh, the grandparents are going to play a role in that, and the church is going to play a role in that, and friends are going to play a role in that. 
And we're going to see in the story of Josiah how all of that unfolds. But we want to encourage the family this morning to understand that is a commission from God on you. And then also take note of the fact that it says, even when he is old. I know that a lot of parents sometimes when they're commissioning their students and commissioning their young ones, they raise them up and your kids struggle. So if you have a a wayward child this morning, I just want to give you a word of encouragement that if you've trained that child up in the way that he should go, a word of encouragement for you this morning is continue to hold that child in front of the Lord. Someday, somehow, someway, the Lord will work that out. I'm convinced that's why the thief on the cross, the story exists, that there was a wayward mom out there praying for that young man. Otherwise, that story makes no sense at all because it ruins everything. He doesn't, he doesn't come down. He's not baptized. There's no fruit. There's no nothing. But somehow the thief on the cross makes perfect sense. And somehow the Lord put that story in there for us to know that God's word is true. And, uh, and that's what I wanted to share with you this morning. And what I love about Josiah is the great effect that Josiah's friends had upon him is even though he's going to be commissioned at eight years old, his legacy does not affect him. We're going to find out more about his legacy coming up. And one of the things I want you to consider this morning is, had you considered how Jesus feels about children? Have you ever considered about how Jesus feels about children? You, and have you ever considered the fact that children are actually used to bless and encourage now, when was the last time you thought about a child blessing or encouraging you? I don't know if you guys were here Wednesday night um, last week. We had this little praise, and what's it officially called, Eric? The, li- uh, the living room. The living room. <laughs> we- the Faith Cafe, right. Uh, we had this Wednesday evening uh, once a month where we sing praise and worship, and I, one of my first events was to go to that. And so me and Eric were in the Faith Cafe. We were in the front row. We like to sing together, as you guys noticed. And so we were in there, and we were singing some songs. And uh, about halfway through that, I noticed this very strong voice from behind me. And I turned to Eric, and I said, uh, somebody's singing like it's the last opportunity to sing on the planet Earth. And I turned around to see a young man who I later found out was eight years old. And this eight-year-old boy was literally singing like Jesus was in the room and it was just him and Jesus and he wanted Jesus to know whether there's a prize or not. I am singing to you, Lord. I love you. And I found out later that I guess his mom loves to sing. And so this young man has watched from his role model, his mom, and he has learned to sing like there is no other opportunity to sing. And so me and Eric talked about that later on and I was just blessed and encouraged by that. And I thought it was so appropriate that an eight-year-old could bless me with his singing and then I get to talk about an eight-year-old. But all throughout the Bible, this has happened. And I don't know if it's happened in your life, but Jesus held children in very high regard. And I don't know if that's something that you do. Maybe you've kind of grown past the stage where children are even involved in your life. But there's also consideration in the Bible, if you don't think about how children would be treated, about how Matthew says, if you don't treat children well. Have you ever thought about the severity of this? Matthew 18:6. Whoever causes one of the little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Okay, that's pretty severe, right? I mean, we're getting a feel here for the severity about how the word of God says we should consider children. And it's something like this that kind of sets this whole story up for me because then I started thinking about something. You know, there's only two stories in the Bible that show righteous rebuke. Only two times do we see in the Bible where Jesus shows righteous rebuke. Do you know where the two stories are? Maybe you have, but have you ever put the pieces together? Let me help you retrace those. The first one is pretty common. We kind of remember the one where Jesus is blessing the little children. Do you remember the account where Jesus is blessing the little children in Matthew 19? Matthew 19, 13 through 15. 
Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. Who are they rebuking? The parents and the children. They're rebuking them, saying, Jesus said, Let the little children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. So can you imagine this first scene? The disciples, these guys who are going to go on to write scriptures, his crew is trying to shun the little children from coming to Jesus. They think that Jesus has important things to do, and being surrounded by a mob of little kids is not important. So they're going to move those little kids and those parents away from him because in chapter 19 of Matthew, Jesus is en route to somewhere. He's on his way somewhere. We're going to get to that in 21 and find out where he's on his way to. And so he's going to remove the distraction of the little children. But Jesus rebukes his very own disciples and says, wait a minute, guys, you're missing out something on the value of children. And then he brings the children back to him and then lays his hands upon them and blesses them. What a, what a scene, what a life lesson it must have been for the disciples who are like, uh, guys, did we miss something? Was there somewhere during the morning meeting, did we miss something about the value of children? Uh, I think so, guys. Jesus has great value and understanding of children because then in Matthew 21, probably in the same week, same sequence, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. Have you ever thought about this sequence? In Matthew 19, now in Matthew 21, he's overturning the tables. My house is not going to be called a house uh, of, of prayer, he said. You're making that a robber's den. And he once again, he had the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. You know that, right? That sounds familiar. But we always stop there. Guess what happens in 15 and 16? The chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he had done, and the children were shouting in the temple, Hosanna, praise God, we are saved, the son of David. And they became indignant, and they said to him, Do you not hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes? Have you prepared praise for yourself? Have you ever made that connection? Have you ever seen the connection between where the children are involved and now just a a small period of time later, here he is in the temple? It's probably the same children he had just blessed in the street. They know who he is. Something about children they know where the Pharisees can't even see that this is Hosanna. You know what Hosanna actually means? Me and Jessica were talking about this. Hosanna actually means, praise God, we are saved. They're not singing it, by the way. They're doing like this eight-year-old was over in the room. They are shouting it. They are singing it to the loudest part of their voice. Praise God we are saved to Jesus. And the Pharisees are becoming indignant to this. And Jesus is like, bring it on. This is music to my ears. Oh, man, I love these things about Jesus. I love that Jesus makes consideration for the young. Because to me, Jesus is putting a high value on humility, a lack of pride, the innocence of children, their openness to trust, and their receptivity to see Christ for who he is. And those are all things that the Pharisees cannot see. So it's pretty clear to me that Psalm 127 says this, Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. And I think that's what we need to see as a church. Sometimes we see student ministries, we see children, we even see college ministries sometimes as potential ministries. Um, I often hear the phrase in the last 25 years, the church of tomorrow. But then we read the scripture and then we find out what tomorrow is not even promised church. So why are we telling them that they're the church of tomorrow when then they read the scripture and find out that tomorrow is not even promised? What are we what are we asking them to fulfill something that's not even possible? We need to reconsider what we're saying. They're a gift today. They're a gift now. And we need to see that value now. So let's switch gears. 
Have you ever noticed in the Bible how many times God used someone in the Bible who was a youth? Have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible that God actually used someone to teach Israel, to teach prophecy, who was a youth? Okay, you're running through your storybook. How about Daniel? Daniel, remember him and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You guys all remember them? Daniel records Daniel 1, 2 through 6. They were all children when they were transported. Okay? Small, small, small. But Daniel, he became wise. He became wise. We know that he survived the lion's den. We remember that. But you know that, that Daniel became so wise that Ezekiel says the king of Tyre was once taunted by the saying, Art thou wiser than Daniel? The king was taunted by Ezekiel. Art thou wiser than Daniel? Pretty impressive for a youth. What about Joseph? I say Joseph, a lot of people think coat of many colors. That doesn't help. Okay? Joseph was actually 17 when he had his dream. 17. The Lord gave him a dream. The dream was so powerful, it turned his brothers against him. But his father's love for him was great. His brothers planned harm for him. They took him on a little trip, threw him down a well. They intended harm for him. The Lord used that for good. Promoted him up. Not only did Joseph save his family, but he saves all of Egypt. But initiated with a 17-year-old boy. By the way, in biblical times, 13 initiated adulthood. 13 initiated adulthood. So they never considered them children. They always considered them adults. What about David? How could you not forget David? David was not only small in stature, but he was fair in his looks. So much so that they went straight to his brothers and bypassed him completely. They went down the line of his brothers and said, this one could be king, this one could be king, this one could... What about the little scrawny one out there tending the flock? Oh, no, not that one. That one's absolutely not. He's out there playing his harp and writing music. Who wants a musician, you know? He goes on to write the 23rd Psalms. He goes on to fight lions and bears, little David out there. And who can ever forget the scene where David has to face Goliath and the king says, well, let me put my armor on you to protect you, David. And what happened? His armor drapes right off him like a wet rag because David's so small in stature that the king's armor has nothing to do with covering him. Because who is David's armor? The Lord. I love this passage when I think about David. First Samuel 16, 7. God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's what's so significant when it comes to students, when it comes to children, when it comes to youth. The value and the significance is seen by the heart. And that's what the Lord's looking at. And we need to look at that too. What about Gideon, Samuel, or Solomon? All of them, when they were called by the Lord, were all too young to even shave. Okay? These are baby-faced young men that God will use mightily. But do you think it was exclusive to men, ladies? Absolutely not. There are lady warriors all throughout. Ruth, spectacular. Esther. And who can forget the mother of Jesus, Mary? She's, she's a teen. It's well known that she's a teen. These are wonderful, godly examples of role models and leaders. And I think it's their youthful zeal and their desire to be used by God that God says... Who will be served? Who can serve me? And they say, here am I, Lord. Use me. Now, we're in a series called Transitions, Wise Leadership. And that's the series that we want to talk about. So we need to get to the kind of point where 
1 Samuel 8, 6-7 talks about how the kings actually get initiated and we get to Josiah. So with that, Eric kind of started on this last week, but if you haven't been here, this is where it all starts. Israel has a situation, they're going to cry out for a king, and they do so in 1 Samuel 8, 6-7. I got a little echo, Mark. But the thing that was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord... The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so this is going to institute in the period or the time known as the kings. And Israel's legacy of kings begin. And there were five initial kings over Israel, which is ultimately going to be called the northern kingdom. It starts with Saul in 1050, Ishboeth, David, Solomon and then Rehoboam, as we finished with uh, Eric last week. Rehoboam's legacy is he will then divide the kingdom. So it will go from being one united kingdom to a divided kingdom. And then in the divided kingdom, it now becomes the southern kingdom. There's a lineage. And we're going to start in with the 17th king for some background here. The 17th king is Josiah's great-grandfather. It's King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah, I think it's good to have background on him because... Uh, Sometimes you are where you come from. King Hezekiah, Josiah's great-grandfather, was a king for 29 years, and he did right in the sight of the Lord. So sometimes when you talk about why why a person does or doesn't do well, we give credit to legacy. So what I want to establish for you first before we get to Josiah is let's let's build up the background. Let, Let me give you a picture of what his legacy is. His father, King Hezekiah, did right for 29 years, so that means his son should do right, right? That means Manasseh, his son, the next king, should do right. Manasseh actually did evil. Straight out of the chutes, he did evil. And he was 12 years old when he came in, and he reigned for 55 years. He did evil for a long period of time. And then as that Proverbs 22, 6 passage says, eventually he realized he was doing evil, and then he turned to God in the end and tried to do good. And as he tried to do good, it says that he he tried to reconcile that which he had done wrong. Unfortunately for Manasseh, by doing more evil than good, his son, Amon, who becomes Josiah's father, had the opportunity to choose. He had a great-grandfather who did all good, and now he had a father who did mostly evil, but a little good. For Amon, the decision was clear. At 22 years old, when he took the throne, he did exclusively evil to the point that verse 23 in 2 Chronicles 2.33 says he multiplied evil. He multiplied evil. And this is so important because, parents, you have to understand something. You have such a tremendous input, tremendous role in your children's life that even if your children grow up, um, the legacy that you have for them, for Josiah coming into the, to the kingdom, to have a father whose legacy is multiplied guilt meant for the records, you would just assume that Josiah was doomed. And this is what I love about the Lord, is the Lord shows not only great compassion, but Josiah is going to prove that you are not what your parents are because of Christ. Now that's something, if you hadn't thought about for today, just that alone in this message is amazing. His dad's legacy is multiplied guilt. And as we read in 2 Chronicles 34, 1 through 2, if you have this one passage, you can read this initial passage with me. Mark, this is where we'll start in 2 Chronicles 34, 1 through 2. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, 
And he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father, David, and did not turn aside from the right or to the left. In his initial coronation, in his initial entry into the kingdom as an eight-year-old, he walks right. How is it even plausible that an eight-year-old beats those odds? I'll tell you a couple of things that had to happen. One, he had to have been surrounded by some godly counsel. If you're not surrounded by godly counsel, you cannot beat the legacy that he had above him. And right now in your life, if you're not surrounded by godly counsel and you have a legacy of difficult in front of you, then I want to encourage you this morning, get some godly counsel around you because this is proof right here that you are not what you come from if you have godly counsel. Because as an eight-year-old, he comes right out of the chute walking godly. He doesn't crawl out of the chutes. He comes out of the chutes walking godly. I don't know if you guys know any eight-year-olds right now, but... Most eight-year-olds, just having a conversation with them about anything is pretty difficult. But having an eight-year-old rule godly, pretty impressive. There's also a phrase in here that's pretty interesting. Did you catch the phrase that he walked in the ways of his father, David? Is that a typo? I thought his father was Amon. Wow. You see, this is who our God is, okay? Whoever you are, however you've been raised, in Christ you have a new father. And you are not your legacy because in Christ you are made new. So even if your legacy is horrific, horrible, or amazing, to the degree that you have a new father, you have an opportunity to break clean and walk in the ways of a new father And so for this young king, when he looks up the ladder of kings, Rehoboam, Abaniah, Asha, Jehoshaphat, he has the opportunity to look up the list. Who does he pick but another young king who walked in the ways of the Lord? David, the young shepherd who was like him, who would go on to be someone who the Lord said had a heart like himself, right? He walks as his father David That's not his father. His father's Amon, who multiplied evil, but he chooses to walk like someone else. His model, his role model, is someone new. And that's who Christ gives him someone new to model himself after. And I think that's also so amazing. God equips him with new strengths and new skills and a new heart to model after. So that, as we continue reading in verse 3, now moving into his eighth year of his reign, so if he started when he was eight... And he's now in his eighth year in his reign. He's how old? Sixteen. So now as a 16-year-old, while still a youth, he begins to seek, once again, the God of his father David. He's now seeking. So he's gone from walking to seeking. I like to call this jogging. Eh? Now, today the word seek has got a lot of different connotations, good, bad, and indifferent. That's unfortunate. But for me, this seeking for him is, once you've been walking with the Lord a little bit and seeing how he kind of moves and grows... You kind of get more hungry. You kind of get more thirsty. Your desire to kind of know him. And so to me, the seeking is he's moving from that slow walk into kind of a slow jog. And if you've ever tried to get in shape before, this is a good way to do it. Um, It's bad to start jogging. If you're going to get in shape, don't just start jogging. That will not work for you. So 
He's walked eight years, and now he's moving into this year. And he's getting, you know what, Lord, I've seen you do all these things. We've been walking with the Lord. We're doing well as a, a nation. I'm going to continue to walk with you. I've got these people around me. <clears throat> They're holding me accountable. What else can we do? I'm going to continue to be like David. I'm going to continue to do what was important to David. So I'm sure he's just looking at the list. What was important to David? How did David act? What were the things that David did? And I'm going to model those things. If you don't have someone good to model in your life, then I would encourage you to find someone to model who's done well, someone who's walked after the Lord. And maybe, maybe find yourself modeling that. If you, you, know, you say, you know, I'm a grandparent here today, Jeff, and this is a good message, but you've already kind of lost me. How does this apply to me? Well, just because you're a grandparent doesn't mean you don't have a major role in how people are being raised. Your grandchildren still need you significantly. My, I'm, I'm a grandparent. I'm talking to you as a grandparent. And my grandchild that's now on this planet Earth, he needs me. And I want to show him as a grandparent what it means to be a godly grandparent. So all of us have a role, and we need to know scripturally what our main role is. I also have a role to my daughter to continue to encourage her to walk with the Lord. Walk with the Lord. Train that child up in the Lord. Get that child in church. Pray with that child every day. Read to that child every day. You know, it doesn't end. Sometimes we have this kind of... You know, disconnect, like I've raised them, hand the baton, and it's done. Well, that might work for ministry, but for parenting, it never ends. we gotta, we got to stay the course. And now look what happens. Now that he's walked this walk and he's jogging, this guy's going to turn into the most... <coughs> I mean, this, this next section, look what happens in the next passage in verse 4. Now in the 12th year, so if he started when he's 8 and he's in the 12th year, how old is he? He's 20. He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved images, the molten images. And it says, they tore down the altars of Baal. Who's the they? He has a group now. He has a core posse of people around him. He has surrounded himself from the very beginning with a high priest, with scribes, with this whole group of guys. And they are going out and they are doing business together. They are holding everybody accountable. He's not a one-man army thinking that he can get it done by himself. He, he can list all the names coming up, and there's a great, interesting group of names. If you haven't picked any names for your children coming up, I've got some wonderful ones for you coming up here. They tore down the altars of Baal and the presence and the incense altars that were high above him and chopped them down. Also the ashram, the carved images, the molten images. He broke them into pieces and ground them into powder. He scattered them on the graves of those who had uh, fallen and sacrificed to them. And then he burned the bones of the priests on the altars and he purged Judah and Jerusalem. And he continued to do this until he cleaned up all of Israel, north and south. I don't know about proficiency in your mind, but if you've killed the high priest, and then you burn their bones on top of the places that they used to sacrifice, that's pretty proficient for purging. And he's 20. Got a 20-year-old in mind right now? Think about a 20-year-old that you know right now. Think about what they do and what they're proficient in. This guy's leading an army, cleaning up an entire nation. I mean, focused is this guy. Because he's gone from a slow walk to a steady jog, yes, please. You know that I have... I left mine down there. Thank you, Gene. So kind. I call this the running stage, the running man. This young guy, he is growing up in the Word. He is growing up with all these guys around him, and he is not taking anything for granted. And as, he, as we watch him grow through each stage, he's continuing to grow in strength. His confidence grows. He's like, you know what? 
these giant altars that are in. They chop them down. They burn them down. When they're done and everything is purged and clean, his relationship with the Lord is so strong and his confidence in the Lord is so great that the crew that he's running with all knows one thing. We have the kind of leader that we can follow. Focus. You want to follow someone who's a leader? Follow someone who's focused and make sure that focus is on the Lord. And I guarantee you, wherever that person gets you, you will be closer to the Lord. He's so focused that as it continues in 2 Chronicles 34, 8, it says now in his 18th year. So if he started when he's 8, in his 18th year, he's 26. Math is getting hard as it gets hotter, I'm sure. He's 26. And it says he had purged the land of everything. He now knows what he needs to do. So he sends his officials. That's what he's calling his posse, his group, his core group. He sends his officials to do the last thing left, to repair the house of the Lord. I'm calling this his sprint. What's important to David? What was important to Solomon? The house of the Lord. Everything's been cleared. Right? He's cleared the land of all the idols and all the stuff that was causing the, the people to be confused. And now what's left is to get them focused on worship again. They need to repair the temple because unfortunately his dad, Amon, had desecrated the temple. Part of that worship that they had done caused a lot of desecration to the temple. And so now he's going to send his crew in there and he's going to be like, guys, let's go in there and do a Tony Pekka job on this temple and get this thing completely spit shined and polished. Get Gene, get Tony, get all the boys in there and start rallying this thing up. I want this thing completely spit, shine, and polished. We're going to rebuild and we're going to repair the temple because we need a place to worship. He sends them there because he's focused and he's not worried about what his dad has done. He's moving past that. He's focused on who David is and he says, this is all that's left for us to do. He sends this guy named Hilka in there to look for... To clean things up. And, the, and while he's there, Hilka, the high priest, that's his high priest, finds something. And it would, probably would have been easy to find things because uh, as the temple was being destroyed before, the priests and stuff would have probably started hiding things knowing that the temple was in a difficult situation. So things like scrolls, which were very valuable. A scroll back then would have been about $3,000, which today would have been thousands and thousands of dollars. Those, they would have hidden them under rocks, under different crevices, that's how we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were hidden. They would have been hidden. And so while Hilka's in there and they're starting to do some repairs, they're turning some rocks up, they're turning some different stones up, all of a sudden a scroll is revealed. And it's the book of the law given by Moses. And Hilka realizes that they found this treasure and he is blown away and he cannot wait to go show it to King Josiah And scholars believe that the section that they read to King Josiah is Deuteronomy 5, 26, 27. Now imagine this. 57 years it's been since they have heard directly from God's word being read. 57 years. And this is what Hilkah reads to Josiah. Deuteronomy 5, 26. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived. Go now and hear all that the Lord our God says. Then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear it and do it. And everything Josiah has been doing his entire life comes crushing down on him. 
The word of God revealed is living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword. And this 26-year-old king is just absolutely devastated by the word of God being read to him. He cannot believe that this scroll exists. He cannot believe that the word of God exists. And he hears it. Second Chronicles 34, 19, 21 says, When he heard it, when he heard it, that's good English. When he heard it, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkah, listen to these names. Here's your names, mom. So you got Hilkah, Ikam, Shapem, Abaddon, Micah, Shapem, the scribe, Isaiah, the king's servant, to go inquire of the Lord for me, of those who are left in Israel and Judah, concerning these words of the book, which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord, which is poured out on us because of our fathers. For we have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Man, he hears the word of the, the word of God and he responded to it. He responded to it. And you talk about response. It is physical. Now, we don't tear our clothes and, and do as they do kind of in the east. But I'm warning it today when we hear the word of God, I mean, other than fan ourselves because it's extremely high. I mean, what, what do you do when you hear the word of God and it speaks to you? How, how do you respond to the word of God? I know the word of God speaks to me. And when it, res, when it speaks to you, how do you respond to the word of God? I think the word of God, it spoke to Josiah and he knew that he needed to do something. So he did what he, any person could do at that point. He was just like, he just rips his clothes and he's just like, how could we live like this? How, how could we do this? We've, we've heard the voice of the living God. How could we live like this? How could we build all these temples and these shrines? And how could we walk away from everything that we've known? How could we destroy this temple? How could we be this kind of people? How can we do this? You see, and his physical response created a spiritual response. And he's pleading with the people, how can we do this? What are we doing He's a king. He's leading the people to the throne of God saying, what are we doing? How did we do this? We need to respond to God appropriately. And what we've been doing, guys, is not. I might be in charge of you, but we're in charge of this whole thing to our generations, to our family, to our children, to their children. It's not just accountability to one, it's accountability to one another. You know, the phrase one another is all throughout the scripture. And sometimes our life becomes so independent of that that we just kind of get in this vortex and it's literally like a black hole that just sucks us in. It's, it's our life in relative nature to everyone. You know, we're, we're involved with everyone. Everyone in this church has an involvement with everyone. When someone hurts, we all hurt. And when someone goes down, we should all be praying and caring for that person. We are one body. That's what the scripture says. One faith, one body. A great book from Chuck Colson, if you want to read it, One Body. What a treasure the word of God is. When's the last time you considered the word of God a treasure? I mean, we've, we've made the word of God something where every thrift store has like 50 copies of Bibles. And we have Bibles all... It's, it's just Bible here, Bible there, Bible on our phone, Bible, Bible... It's just... I mean... It's a treasure. Do you realize there's places in this world right now where a copy of the Bible, there's people that would give their life for a page of the Bible, a page of the Bible. 
And there's places in the world right now where a page of the Bible is passed around, folded, passed to other people who memorize the page, and then they pass it to other people and they, and they memorize it, where a page of the Bible is all they have, and they are learning Scripture and coming to salvation vis-a-vis a page which is being passed around in towns and communities. I have a friend who works at Gideon's, and you should still hear the stories the Gideon's tell about the power of the Scripture. They still pass out Bibles at schools and malls and still try to put them in hotels and stuff like that, but every year the accounts of what just God's Word can do. You know, Josiah, he said, I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to respond to it. And the next thing he had to do was make sure to do something else with it. And we need to make consideration for that too, is we need to make sure we spread the word. Your initial response is physical, which causes you to have a spiritual response, which then in 2 Chronicles 34, 29, it says this, Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. All of those people gathered. He went up to the house of the Lord, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and priests, the Levites, and all the people from the greatest to the least, And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which he found in the house of the Lord. He read from the greatest to the least to everyone, man, woman, and child. He read the word of God. I cannot tell you how many times in my years in ministry that people come up to me and say, Pastor Jeff, you seem pretty comfortable with sharing, you know, faith and stuff like that. Can you give me some pointers Or talk to me about helping me share to be a little bit more evangelistic. And I always tell them the same thing. The last thing you want to do is hear from me about how I share faith. You don't want to be me sharing faith. You share your story, your testimony. And when you're done with your testimony, just read scripture. Just read whatever scripture you know. If you know five verses, read five verses. If you know four verses, read four verses. And then if you don't know any more verses, go home and study another verse. The power of the word of God is how people come to salvation. It is the role of the Holy Spirit to bring people to salvation. You don't have to put that onus on you. You don't have to be clever or smart or wise or any of that. That's not up to us. All you have to do is share God's word and share your testimony. That's all we're required to do. But we are required to do that. Why do people think that's optional? It's like come to Christ and then do what you want to do. No, share Christ. Do you remember um, the first time you came to Christ and how excited you were and nothing could stop you from sharing? Because that's kind of what my whole life has been like. I still can't get over that. For me, it was, it was Hume Lake. It was, I got saved at camp. And I grew up in a small Christian church right down the street here in Santa Ana, Berean Baptist Church. It was a small little church with you know piano left and keyboard right. And everyone dressed really nice. And um, my mom made us sit right there, and um, pretty sure she called the pastor every week and told him what I did. So as he was preaching, you know, who said not and he bought that? And I was like, oh, like, wow, seriously, mom, why do you keep telling this dude what I'm doing this week? So like, I had a serious problem between the ages of 10 and 14. I think I accepted the Lord about 26 times. Is I kept thinking, well, if it didn't work this week. I better try again next week. And so my faith was so rocked because how could you sin? And, and if you accept it and you sin, so confusing to me. And so I was so blessed that she spent the money to send me to camp and get away from everyone. And I could hear other people's testimonies. And it was in the testimonies of other people that the simplicity of salvation came to me. They shared the word of God and they shared their testimony. And in that moment, the dudamas, I love this word, the Greek word dudamas, the dynamite of the Holy Spirit came to me and said, Jeff, it is a one-time event. 
I come into you and I take over everything. And I make your heart of stone new. And from that point on, I'm going to tell you what's right and I'm going to tell you what's wrong. And it's never going to go away, but it's done. And I gave my life to the Lord at that camp. And I have never been able to live that down. Even today, I wake up every morning and there's a sense of awe and reverence and gratefulness for the salvation that was given to me. And that's what I say. Parents, remember when your faith awoken the first time you've done that? That's what we need to do. You need to respond. You need to hear the word of God and respond and share that with your kids. When they wake up in the morning, when they go to bed at night, don't just pray over food or you're going to teach your kids there's something wrong with food and you need to pray for it. That's not a relationship with the living, breathing God when you only pray at dinner. Pray when they're going in the bathroom. Pray when they wake up in the morning. Pray when you're combing their hair. It's a relationship with the living, breathing God. You pray, you talk to your best friend all day long. You need to talk to God all day long. Why do you only pray over food? Now, I admit there are restaurants where you should pray. That's different. But if you're going to teach your kids, you're going to train them in the nurture and internet, then train them. It's a relationship. They have to pray in the morning, pray in the day, pray in the afternoon, pray in the bathroom, pray, pray, pray all day without ceasing. Right? If you're a believer, then you need to walk the walk. You need to pray in such a way that you know it's a limited time offer to share. You don't need to get smarter. You don't need to go to school and get wiser. He recruited fishermen. I'm a fisherman. He recruited guys like me for a reason. Because when you point me towards water and you say fish, I don't need any more instructions. You don't need to tell me the weather conditions. I figure it all out because you said fish. That's all I need to say is fish. Boom. I am singular in focus. And I'm the same way when it comes to salvation. I see someone in need. And the, and the Spirit activates that inside of me, boom. I don't need any... Distraction doesn't bother me. So there are surfers that have been clotheslined on my fishing line because I forget to tell them the fishing bowls are in the water and 30-pound test is not a fun thing to run into. It's okay. They learn. I'm going to be hanging out with Eric at 10th Street coming up here, so you may want to warn all the guys at 10th Street. Hey, if you're in here today and this is the first time you've ever heard the name Jesus Christ, or that there's a situation that you need to make a response, let me just speak to you for one second. If it's going out to you and you're in it's wherever, la, la, land. let me just tell you this. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a decision that has to be made. And if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. And I'm not going to tell you whose song that is because it's a rock and roll song. And they don't know what they said was more godly than they could possibly imagine. But those are the very words of a rock and roll song. And you know what? That's the truth. Because evolution is a belief. So even if you choose to not believe and you say, you know what? I don't believe. Then you believe. You believe in non-belief. And that's a belief. And you're going to stand accountable for that non-belief in front of the living, breathing God one day. So just know that I've warned you. And that I love you, and I want you to know something, that he loves you, and he wants you to know. That's why we're sharing the word, so that you can know that he loves you. All right, let's read the third thing that he learned. Just, Josiah discovered something else. Second Chronicles 34. Then the king stood in his place, his palace, and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments, his testimonies, his statutes, with all his heart, with all his soul, and to perform the words of his covenant written in the book. Walk the walk. 
Talk the talk. If you're going to be a believer in Christ, do, do us all a favor. Do it in such a way that you honor the Lord in every way. The last thing we need in faith is someone to hold up a sign and say, you know, turn or burn. I appreciate the thought that might be true, but you never saw Jesus doing that. And if anyone knew that more than anyone else, he did. And if anyone had a right more than anyone else to do that, he did. And if he chose not to do that, then we should choose to follow his examples. What he chose to do was go to the sinners of the highest regard and eat with them and hang out with them and spend time with them and love them as is. To such a degree that they had no choice but to say, Something is wrong with you because my sin nature is telling me you should not be eating with me. Samaritan woman, you should not be drinking water with me, sir, in the middle of the day. This is a serious problem for you, Jewish man. And he said, I don't care. Hand me the cup, woman. I'm thirsty. And he's drinking. It's a very intimate thing to drink from a cup from a well. And he's drinking water with her from the same cup in the middle of the day. This is not good for Jesus. If anyone sees this, this is bad. He doesn't care what people think. He's thirsty, and he's talking to someone who doesn't know him. That's more important, and it blows her mind. She says, what? Get out of here, you crazy man. No, she says, you've got to come back and talk to who? The rest of the village. More heathens, more sinners, Samaritans, the lowest of the low, the crossbred Jews. And the rest of the town comes to the Lord. That is the power of a walk that walks the walk and talks the talk. We don't need signs. We don't need pointing. Just do it. Do faith. Don't think faith. Be faith. Don't drive by a neighborhood and go, wow, that's a really terrible neighborhood. Go in the terrible neighborhood. Mow someone's lawn. Bring someone dinner. Be Jesus' hands. Be Jesus' feet. This is what Josiah is figuring out. It's, it's about obedience. It's about Matthew 5, 37. Your yeses are yes. Your noes are noes. That's what we need as Christians. We don't need double-tongued. Christians get divorced just as much as anyone else. How is that helping us? When you come to me for counseling, by the way, I'm just telling you in advance, Pastor Jeff's going to counsel the Word of God. I'm not going to encourage you to get divorced because the Word of God doesn't encourage you to get divorced. If you want to be angry in advance, then know that in advance. We need to do what the Word of God says. If you're going to stand in front of family, friends, and God and say, 